Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I want to issue what I believe is termed a shout out to a listener called David who left some very nice feedback about the show. Thank you David, that's very kind of you. But said he had one small niggle which is that the release schedule of the show is a bit higgledy-piggledy. David, you are correct. The schedule is a little bit all over the place. I'm sorry about that. I do attempt to publish programmes at regular intervals, but what with a full-time job and kids and all that nonsense, it never seems to work out that way. But rest assured, it's on my list of many things to improve. But can I also say, I love your use of the words niggle and higgledy-piggledy in one sentence. You are clearly a poet, my friend. And if any other listeners would like to rate the show or leave feedback, I know it's annoying, but I have just made that onerous task a little bit less irritating. All you have to do now is go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites. Welcome, or should I say bienvenido, to our Spanish-themed episode. You might not think there's much of a connection between Soho and Spain, but my guest for the second part of the show, our film chat section, would beg to differ. That guest is the award-winning movie composer Gary Yershon, who, when given a choice of any Soho film to talk about, went completely off-piste and picked one that wasn't even on my list, A Touch of Class from 1973, which is set roughly half in Spain and half in Soho. That's coming up later, and before that, to kick off the show, we're staying a tad closer to home when we hear about the history of Bradley's Spanish Bar on Hanway Street. If you've been to Bradley's, you'll know that it's arguably just outside the strict borders of Soho. Personally, I think it gets a pass on that one. And you'll also be aware that it's very, very small, and it's not particularly Spanish. So why is it called Bradley's Spanish Bar? Find out after this awkward change of music. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a pub. But sadly, the pub was closed. Yes, the shutters were down and the pumps were off, but I was kindly given access to Bradley's Spanish Bar one Thursday afternoon by its manager, Jan de Vries. 
Jan has been the manager of Bradley's for over a decade, and the bar itself has been there for several more, a tiny, tucked away little haven just off Oxford Street. Like all pubs, Bradley's has suffered over the last year, and being such a small place with no facilities to provide meals and with no outdoor space, times have been particularly tough. Even though the bar is small, if two people sit at either end of the room, and if one of those people brings a very long mic cable with them, it's possible to chat in Bradley's and remain socially distant, which is exactly what we did. Well, my name is Jan de Vries, and I've been the um, general manager of Bradley's Spanish Bar since November 2009. And you're not Spanish, I can tell from your accent. I am not from Spain, I'm not from England, I'm actually from Belgium. And like so many people in London, I um, arrived here by accident and uh, had a good time and decided to stay. Could you tell me how long the bar has been here? And uh, could you tell me how it started and why it's called Bradley's Spanish Bar? So Bradley Spanish Bar has got like a very interesting past and um, for most of the things I'm going to say I will have to refer to a uh, very interesting Twitter feed by um, um, Ad Garius who did a very extensive um, research last year on the history and it goes back to um, late 1800s when it was um, originally it was a company called uh, William and Humbert and they were sherry importers from, from Spain and they were selling their, um, their sherry over here. And then the biggest part of the story is actually it, it, it's, it's about um, Greek wrestlers, strangely enough. It was a guy called, and this I'm going to try, but I'm not sure whether I'm going to pronounce it right, Milo Popopokostopoulos. There might be a few mistakes in that name, but um, look it up if you want to. He was a professional wrestler, made a lot of money, and was very wise and decided to invest it in, um, in, in buildings in Soho. The, um, the Hare Krishna building, that's still there in, uh, in Soho. He, he used to own that. And he sort of um, started playing Monopoly with, um, uh, with, with Hanway Street. Later, he brought his two brothers over, um, uh, Johnny and Milo. And they were the ones that, um, that, that started running the bar as it is known right now. So the big question, like, where did the name Bradley's come from? It is, um, um, as you, unfortunately, not, you can't see it on the podcast, but there's a picture hanging here of um, um, uh, William Bradley, Eli Bradley, who used to drink here. And when they actually made it a public place, they decided to name it after him. On the picture there, it says, William Bradley, first president, Hanway yes. Club, 1930-1962. And the Hanway Club is the original name of, of Bradley's Spanish bar, is it? From, from the history that go back, we, we, we do find back um, the name William and Humbert, and then we also find back a name, um, Stones, I think it was, um, up until 1969, and then suddenly it disappears. And then in 1970, we find the first references of um, Bradley Spanish Bar, and the only reason that they found it is because they, they traced down the, the, um, the telephone number, and they saw, like, oh, suddenly the phone number stays the same, but the name doesn't exist anymore the name sort of preceded the actual Spanishness of the place. So they, they, they called it Bradley Spanish Bar, and then afterwards there, there was like more and more Spanish that came over here. Um, you, st um, you used to have Costa Dorada, like quite a few Spanish places. It was a bit of a Spanish area. So it's nothing to do with the fact that they were importing sherry, or is that... That might originally have like, like something, but, but like I said, that was um, 18, um, 1890. So it, it, it's very hard to, uh, to trace back what the actual, the actual origins of the, of, of the place are. Okay. But it becomes more interesting with every, uh, every generation or with every new manager or every new owner that comes in. Alley, 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 
people that have been coming here for like 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, they all have like their own their own version or like their own little detail of a story um, that we'd never heard before. So uh, hopefully in 50 years time we're still going to be here and then that story has become uh, even more interesting than it already is. When I used to come here, I think the last time I came here was maybe... Yeah, the late 90s. I've possibly been here this this century. I'm not sure. But What's your excuse? I don't know. Well, I started having children just after the millennium, and then that was it then, you know. Um, but I was working in the West End, finishing quite late, and this is where I came, you know. And, um, oh, this is one of, the, one of the places I came. And when I walked in earlier on, I don't think it's changed at all. I mean, there's a Perspex screen up now, which is for COVID reasons, I assume, which is that, yes, uh, not very Yes, we do have attractive. screens. That we, we do have like all those uh, prevention and restrictions. Uh, we have to obviously follow those rules, but um, I can assure you that that's not the case when we're, uh, when we're opening normal times. One of the things that's quite well known about the bar is the jukebox, which I think that might be a different jukebox, actually, now we've come to look at it. Bradley's has always been known for the jukebox. It's one of the very few vinyl jukeboxes left. But you're absolutely right, it is, um, um, it is a different one. So over the years, there have been a few different ones because jukeboxes are amazing when you have them at home. But when you have them in a very small pub like this one, there's obviously a bit of wear and tear. And there's like, um, on a Friday night when people have had like one or two drinks, they might lose their, um, <laughs> their balance a little bit. So there, there might be like a glass of beer that goes over it every now and then, unfortunately. But it's well looked after and it is, um, it, it's very prominent. It, it is our logo as well, so, uh, so yes. COVID affected us like, like everybody else, so I, I remember it very well because last year um, we did our last orders on the 16th of March, so basically the day before St. Patrick's Day. We ordered a whole lot of Guinness because St. Patrick's Day, we do have quite a few Irish coming in here as well. So normally St. Patrick's Day is a big day, so um, St. Patrick's Day was a Tuesday. On Monday night, uh, we ordered everything, and at five o'clock, the, the press conference came that as from Tuesday, everybody was supposed to stay in. And then obviously on the 21st of March, everybody was supposed to, uh, to close down. Then we opened up again on the 6th of July until the 5th of November, because this was tier two when we opened up again, and we, we cannot do food, we are just too small. So we have been closed since, uh, since November the 5th again, yes. April the 12th is a big day, isn't it? That's when. Are you going to have for that? Us, April 12th you don't is, have an outdoors, do you? <laughs> we don't have an outdoors, so April 12th for us, uh, absolutely, it doesn't mean anything to us, unfortunately. Um, we're hoping that nothing goes bad, because obviously last year we saw what happened on the 4th of July when, when, when pubs reopened. We went around in so just to, to see what was going on there. There was just no policing whatsoever, and people, people seemed to have like a very short-term memory when it comes to that, and they were just like, oh, wow, the sun is out. It's like it's the middle of a heat wave. We're allowed to drink outside. And everybody just went, it, it was like it was two, two New Year's Eve and one St. Patrick's Day combined. It, it was, was crazy, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So we, we kind of feared that the same thing might happen again, like on the, on, on the 12th of April now. And everybody's kind of look at the whole vaccination thing as the way out, but um, they, they keep forgetting that there's, there's still going to be like a whole other people that haven't been vaccinated. And, and they might be the one that will go out and partying. We, we still do have a little bit of a worry that they might put that 17th of May back a bit because that, that, that's what they did now. They said like the earliest day that we can open is the 17th of May. Oh, so there is a date beyond the April the 12th that's, that's yeah. kind of your day, oh, yeah, as it yeah, were? Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay. It, it, so, so that was the whole five-week thing. So 8th of March was the, 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 the schools opened up again. So five weeks later is the 12th of April is when outdoors activities and people can sit in gardens again and um, pubs can open outdoors and like beer gardens. And then the 17th of May, which is like another five weeks later, is the official, um, the official opening day for um, uh, restaurants, uh, um, uh, indoor pubs, um, I, I would imagine gyms and, 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 and uh, well, everybody who was left out in the, um, the earlier dates. You've had a, a fundraiser, haven't you? A crowd, uh, what's it called? GoFundMe. Yes, we did a, uh, a crowdfunder because luckily we did get some support, um, but not everybody was as helpful and, and, and uh, as understanding. So we figured that one of the ways that we could like, raise some money was to put in a crowdfunder because we're very lucky in that, that we have like a very large group of people that are like very loyal to the bar and that, that really love this, this little hidden gem just off Oxford Street. It was amazing, and, and it's incredibly humbling to see that people just gave us money because they wanted us to to keep going, because they wanted to come here and, and, and have a drink in their favorite pub, because we didn't offer anything in return. You give away a free beer or a free shot, or, but it, it's not like they got like anything anything else in return, so they basically supported us and donated money just for us to, um, to open up again, which is um, amazing and satisfying and humbling and... and uh, and everything together. So uh, yeah, yeah, we're incredibly helpful. That uh, and and in all fairness, like without it, we, we wouldn't have been able to um, um, to open again um, last July, and we definitely wouldn't have been able um, to open again now. And there's um, a few other places in Seoul that did the same thing. And, and French um, House did it, didn't they? Um, French House did it. They got a little bit more than we did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Trisha's did it as well, and they, they got like um, a substantial amount. But it makes sense because those are places that are not. Um, not the big chains and, and that still have like a bit of personality and, and that's what people like. That's why people come to Soho as well. They're important players. The French House here, um, my favourite pub in Soho is um, the Star and Garter on Poland Street. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just, those places, yeah. they're special places. and they, for they, sale now. <laughs> is it for sale? I think it is. Oh, my you have God. To, yeah, I have to check that because I'm not sure, but I think it is. The other thing that the crowdfunder did is like, give us um, um, a lot of hope for the future and, 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 and to be honest, like, at the moment, we're still we're still closed. But personally, I, I, I do think that in the very near future, like um, this area of London, um, it, it's got an amazing future. If, if, if you've looked at what's going on now at um, Tottenham Court Road, the whole St. Giles project, um, Crossrail 1 is going to open up. Um, well, hopefully it's going to open for us very soon because we have three years um, late with that. So there will be an, uh, an, an influx of, 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 of people that, didn't used to come to this side of Oxford Street. So I, I do think that in the future, things will look up for us um, specifically, but for the whole, the whole area in general. Um, a lot of the places that unfortunately we lost in the past, like the Astoria and, and um, a lot of Half other... Of Denmark um, live, Street. Live, yeah, exactly. So, but Denmark Street, there's going to be three new venues um, opening yeah. up, um, and, and, and well, hopefully still, uh, still this year. So and, and, and all that will, will, will bring the, um, the musicians back. It will bring it, it, it will bring the punters back. It will bring new people to um, um, to central London. And then so we we are very hopeful that all that might have a positive impact on um, on, on this area of London and on uh, on Bradley's in uh, in particular for <laughs> for me. So put that date in your diary. May seventeenth is when fingers crossed. Bradley's will reopen. Jan, thank you very much for taking part in the show. You know, he walked three hours to get there. Those crazy Belgians. And I will see you, Jan, on May 17th if I can squeeze my way into Bradley's. I anticipate you'll be quite busy. 
And as Jan said, at Garius is an excellent Twitter feed which contains a wealth of information about the history of Bradley's. And you'll find a link to that and to some other Bradley's bits and pieces in the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Think of Soho in 1973 and what comes to mind. Sleaze, perhaps, prostitution, strip clubs, organised crime, bent coppers. It would be perfectly reasonable to think of all those things, and it was probably because of Soho's salacious reputation that Melvin Frank, the American writer and director of the 1973 rom-com A Touch of Class, chose to locate half of the film on Macclesfield Street. This is our first visit on Soho Bites to the 1970s, which might be because the 70s isn't really considered to be the greatest moment in British film history, but then A Touch of Class isn't really a British film. The Soho that Melvin Frank puts on display is a sanitised one with only a hint of sleaze in the form of one cheerful working girl who goes by the name of Miss French, just enough for American audiences to get the picture. The story is about a love affair between a Brit called Vicky Alessio, a divorced fashion designer played by Glenda Jackson, and Steve Blackburn, a married American expat who's something in insurance played by George Siegel, who sadly passed away just a few days ago at the time of recording. The initial meeting between Vicky and Steve is quite a familiar one if you've seen even just a few rom-coms. The pair meet in Hyde Park and initially don't like each other, but through Steve's persistence, Vicky eventually consents to become his bit on the side, but strictly on her own terms. This is the 1970s after all, and a woman has her needs too. In the past two days, you have picked me up in the rain, given me tea, bought me lunch, lured me to this hideaway with the intention, I presume, of getting me into bed for what you Americans so charmingly call a quickie. Is that a fair raise you may so far? Why do women always think the worst? Why does sex always have to be the first thing that... Yes. <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you. I'm a divorced woman. I'm under a lot of strain and tension. I am not sleeping too well. And I could do with some good, healthy, uninvolved sex with someone who loves his wife and isn't going to be a pain in the ass when it's all over. This must be your lucky day. Well, I thought it was, but not in this overworked little joy station where the sheets haven't been changed in a week and I have to be back in my office in, oh, Christ, half an hour. Well, perhaps... But if you would like to arrange a nice little weekend somewhere, away from London, preferably in the sun and where the sheets are changed every day, please do. I would be very happy to go with you. What he has is pure possess, plus a touch of class. And so the assignation is rearranged and upgraded, and they're off to sunny Spain to consummate the affair. Steve contrives a business trip and only narrowly avoids his whole family tagging along with him, whilst Vicky palms her dog, cat and bird off on her friend Cecil and sets off to the airport. We never quite know who's looking after her two kids. The trip gets off to an unfortunate start when, at the airport, they have to swiftly separate when Steve bumps into his friend Walter, played by Paul Savino. 
Walter insists that he and Steve sit together on the flight and that when they're both in Spain, Steve should socialise with him and his wife Patty, played by Kay Callan. Managing to shake off Walter once they land, the exhausted couple finally arrive at their hotel, which falls well below Vicky's high standards, and are finally getting down to the important business at hand when... What's the matter? Spasm. What? I'm in spasm. What do you mean? If you're in spasm, you're not in spasm, and I'm in spasm. Oh, boy. What do I do? Oh, I don't know. Call the doctor. Oh, oh, don't move. Please don't well, move. Well, how do I get the doctor if I don't Very move? Very slowly, that's all. Very slowly. <laughs> oh, God. But somehow the weekend proceeds bumpily along. There are fallings out and reconciliations, and by the end of their time in Spain, they've decided to continue their tryst on home turf, so rent a flat in, where else, Soho, in which to conduct the affair. Over the next few weeks, they begin to behave almost like newlyweds and fall for each other in a more serious way, which certainly wasn't the plan, although they do both try to maintain the fiction that it's still just a casual thing. As feelings deepen and the situation consequently becomes more difficult, it becomes apparent to at least one of the parties concerned that it's time to bring the affair to an end. But will they have the courage to do it? A touch of class has a charm that by rights it shouldn't really possess. It is, after all, on one level, the story of a serial adulterer's latest fling, but pithy writing and the inspired casting choices of Siegel and Jackson gives what might otherwise be quite a grubby story a I'm going to say it, okay. Gives it a touch of class that enables you to overlook the fact that one is a terrible husband and both are terrible parents. There are moments when they're first setting up their Soho love nest that are reminiscent of the more wholesome Barefoot in the Park from six years previously. But whereas in that film, Robert Redford and Jane Fonda were 20-something forward-looking newlyweds, Vicky Alessio and Steve Blackburn are nearer 40 and have to keep looking over their shoulders. It's no exaggeration to say that A Touch of Class was a massive hit. It won 10 awards that year, including an Oscar for Glenda Jackson, which incidentally she didn't collect in person as apparently she'd forgotten it was Oscars night, as well as several other Best Actress awards. And George Siegel missed out on the Oscar for Best Male Lead, but did pick up a Golden Globe for his performance, and the screenplay and score also did very well in awards season. So nowadays, A Touch of Class 2 would already be in pre-production, but this was in pre-auto-sequel times, so it actually took six years for Melvin Frank to bring out the film's sort of sequel. In fact, Lost and Found from 1979 wasn't a sequel as such, but it has much of the same strong cast and a similar premise. So some people have referred to it as such, but it was much less successful than A Touch of Class and completely bombed. In fact, the opening sentence of Roger Ebert's review of Lost and Found is the unambiguous, this movie is awful. Some people have also suggested that A Touch of Class is a sort of racier 1970s remake of a film that Melvin Frank made with his long-term writing partner Norman Panama in 1960 called The Facts of Life. There are similarities. In the first film, Bob Hope and Lucille Ball unexpectedly begin an affair and escape their respective spouses for a dirty weekend in Acapulco. But 1960 was a very different time from 1973 and the outcomes in each film reflect the changes that society had undergone. The sexual politics and stereotypes in A Touch of Class rooted absolutely in its era, and it's difficult to imagine it doing quite so well now, either with audiences or critics, but I can only imagine that the wit and freshness and naughtiness of the script that are still apparent today must have seemed dazzling in 1973. One person who did see it in 1973 is my second guest, Gary Yershon. Gary has something in common with John Cameron, who wrote the music for A Touch of Class, which is that he too is an Oscar-nominated composer. 
He picked up that nod for his work on 2014's Mr. Turner, which is just one of the many scores he's written as part of his long collaboration with the director Mike Lee. I met up with Gary in an outdoor COVID-safe space in central London. We had thought we'd been clever in opting to use a quiet Bloomsbury Square to record, but as you'll hear, it was a bit noisier than anticipated. And I should point out that this recording took place just a few days before George Siegel passed away at the fine old age of 87. What made you choose this film? Does it have a special place in your heart? Um, in some ways, it's not on my list of top ten favourites or anything. I saw it when it came out, and when you told me that you were looking at Soho-based films, it came into my mind immediately, because there's a particular section that's set entirely in Soho. And it's very specific, isn't it? Because it, the specific road and the specific address Eight is named. Macclesfield Street. Yeah. And I think Soho looks absolutely lovely in it as well. <laughs> it looks, generally, looks like these kind of 70s New York films where I think they put the camera on the side of the street, maybe inside a van or a car, to, so to avoid, having to avoid having to pay a licence fee. And so there's traffic going between them. It just, look, it just looks great. And I think the Soho-ness of it is... Fantastic, and I'm ashamed it wasn't on my list. <laughs> I think people don't think of it as a Soho film. It is a little bit of a tourist trap film about London, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's not quite... It's not one of these films, a Woody Allen film, that say, I'll meet you by Big Ben or whatever. It's, uh... But it, it's got a lot of tourist tick-box locations in it, such as the Albert Hall, for example, or Shaftesbury Avenue, or... Hyde Park. At the Hyde beginning. Park right at the beginning and that amazing view. Um, it's good both east and west, somewhere between Vauxhall and Lambeth bridges. Yeah. It's so aimed at American audiences. It's, yeah. You know what the telltale thing is, don't you? What's that? It's when Glenda Jackson goes into the Soho Delicatessen. I know what you're going to say. And you, she, uh, she asks for? Oregano. She does. Everybody here calls it oregano. So when she goes in, Glenda, of all people, and says, have you got any oregano? You, you know the market the film's being aimed at, you know. Like the title, actually. That we were saying before we started recording that I couldn't figure out why it was called Touch of Class. But actually, if you do look at it from the point of view of an American audience, she is a touch of class. It's, it's Glenda Jackson's character. So you saw it in 1973 when it first came out. Have you seen it since then, over yes. the years? I've seen it a couple of times. For various reasons, I wanted to listen to the score again, which was Oscar-nominated. A very unusual Oscar nomination in the sense that it's a British Oscar nomination for music. There haven't been that many and um i believe you're one of those i am one of those but <laughs> when i was being interviewed about mine clever research people said well you know of course there was john cameron for touch of class which i didn't to my shame but i looked it up and he's still very much with us yeah very much yeah and uh i listened to uh, i thought it was you really would have thought it was an american score it's it's got such a he's absolutely nailed the language there's almost with no disrespect to it there's there's a kind of sitcom feel 
about it. How um, would you characterise that Americanness of the score? Because I know exactly what you mean, but I can't quite put my finger on it. I would say it belongs to a category of film score that one associates with Herb Alpert. Oh, yeah. And that mid-60s vibe mm. carried on. It's only a few years later. Yeah. Into quite a lot of light comedy films. And this absolutely nails it. It's quite completely part of that. One of the things that's interesting about it, we're, we're not talking about Soho, we're talking about John Cameron's music, but it's a wonderful score. It's got an instrument on it. It sounds like a Fender Rhodes to me. Do you know what a Fender Rhodes is? No. It was an early electronic keyboard instrument, a kind of electronic piano, but its sounds were like a a vibraphone. It's very, very distinctive. It was all over the place during that time. It's one of the things that gives it a kind of very defined period. The songs are, there are a number of them by George Barry and Sammy Kahn. The title song, I think, is pretty good, and the final song is not. And um, So much love to waste or something. It's or... agony, but the first song is very, you know, to it has a nice feel and um, John Cameron weaves it a lot into the score very kind of selflessly really and it's uh, it's quite entertaining that song. Yeah. No I like the music I think that does kind of give it a, a touch of class you could almost say <laughs> It does and one of the best things just before we leave it I have to bring this up is the golf match he decides to do a kind of bolero yeah. But he, it's in four, it, a bolero is in three time, but he puts it in four, which just gives it a little bit of a kick. The golf bit, I, that's the bit that I could have lost completely. Because I, I don't understand golf for a start. I didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> you see, I like the golf bit. I like the golf bit because the theme of the film, really, is George Segal's character's weakness as a, as a kind of moral being. Yeah. We're exploring that and, uh, you know, his affairs, uh, uh, of which this is, we gather, just one. Mm. Uh, but it gets a bit complicated. And you see him very much through Glenda Jackson's eyes, mm. the character's eyes, Vicky's eyes, in the golf match, in a very sustained way. And I, I think that's pretty effective, actually. So now, you've watched it again recently for this. Yeah. Is it as good as you remember it now? Or, I mean, do you see it through an older gentleman's eyes now in, in 2021? It is good in a lot of ways. It's quite snap. The dialogue is quite snappy. And the, a lot of the kind of situations are, I think, still funny. And the, the, the battle of the sexes thing is, you know, fairly eternal, I suppose. But in some ways, it's dated painfully. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I think uh, there's no way today that Vicky Glenda Jackson's character would pad around in such an indulgent fashion, especially when they go to Spain from the airport onwards, where she decides to disappear when Paul Salvino's character comes along, and then through the golf match. But somebody who is so strong as Glenda Jackson as an actor. She's very convincing, but you just can't imagine somebody writing something like that for her. Unless it was 1973. Yes, and, but they weren't writing it for her. They saw her on Morgan and Wise and offered her the job. Yes, that's true, isn't it? They 
she got that job because of Malcolm and Wise and the Cleopatra appearance. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Which is <laughs> undateable and classic. Yeah. Yes. We might as well get onto this now because it, it keeps rearing its head about their relationship and the time and the sexual politics and stuff. The, the initial conversation they have about beginning an affair, she says, yeah, why not? A bit of uncomplicated sex, that's fine by me. So I think they're trying to portray her as a liberated, modern 1970s woman who is in control of her own destiny and that kind of thing. But actually, she then ends up being a lot more passive. You know, she's at home cooking chicken chasse. <laughs> yes, she assumes kind of wifely behaviour at a certain, or, you know, perceived wifely behaviour at a certain point. And also, her children disappear in yes. the most extraordinary way. Yeah, her whole life disappears. Well, she, her work doesn't. No, her work doesn't, no. But her, the children are carted off who knows where. But the children... I'm staggered, watching it again, about how expedient the children are. There's a point, one of, one of the phases where they're not getting on in Spain and she's sitting in bed reading a book. Did you read? Did you notice what book it it's was? The, yes, it's the female eunuch. Yeah, which, which is a very purposeful choice. They, oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like... Follow what it says in the book, woman, you know. Yes. I mean, it, it's curious. She had done by this stage two whoppers. She'd done Women in Love for Ken Russell and she'd done Sunday Bloody Sunday yeah. for John Schlesinger. She'd done Elizabeth R on BBC on, already? On the box, yeah. yeah. So she was, and of course she was very famous for being in the pre Peter Brook Company and the RSC and all that. But in terms of mass things, she, she was a serious... Almost, not quite a tragedian, but she was, you know, along those lines. Mm. Did you like her in the film? Do you like, do you like her performance? Oh, I, I absolutely loved it. And I thought what was inspired about it was casting her against Siegel, because um, he is also very good in it. He's a very good actor. Mm. He doesn't sentimentalise the bad behaviour mm. at all. He just... You can see the character following its desire mm. very much. And I thought that was... It's a, it's a very good performance and they're a good foil. She just seems to spend her whole time in this love nest that they've created themselves on Macclesfield Street. In Macclesfield Street. Well, which is a lovely flat. I, oh, I, mean, I would die for that flat, <laughs> that location. You can congratulate the art director on having achieved that yeah. flat because that will be a set. Yeah, yeah. Soho in this film kind of represents all the things that Soho is supposed to represent. It's, it's Even though it looks lovely and modern and not at all kind of 19th century sleazy, the presence of Gay Brown's Miss French yeah. in the flat upstairs, yeah. it completely places Soho as a, a den of sexual vice, doesn't it? Although they, they do use Macclesfield Street, which is more into Chinatown, so yes. <laughs> when they have a, a shot of Soho, they're talking about the kind of multicultural element of it rather than the sex. Because just over the road, it would have been chock-a-block with um, it, pawn shops. Absolutely. And it was, yeah, they, 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 they wouldn't have wanted the old Compton Street of that period. No. In the real world, would Vicky Alessio fall for Steve Blackburn in 1973? Is that, for me, although I do enjoy their relationship, it does feel slightly implausible that she would be attracted to him. I think she'd think he was an idiot. That's a good question. I mean, if you're thinking about her... Well, actually, I was going to say if you're thinking about her now, I expect that's true. But I expect there are lots of mismatches like that. I mean, you just have to think about the number of 
people who you say, what's she doing with him? Is she really going out with him? Exactly, yeah. exactly, and vice versa. Yeah. I've never really thought of Glenda Jackson as being a classic beauty. I don't think she's a classic beauty, but in this film, she's absolutely stunning, especially... She just looks remarkable. I don't... I, I suppose she's, what, early 30s-ish? And she also looks very... Even though it's the 1970s, which is, you know, famous for its crimes against fashion, <laughs> she looks great in all her outfits as well. He doesn't. He just wears a crappy 70s suit. And, yeah. Uh, I think with Vanda Jackson, she is so honest. Mm. That's been her kind of stock in trade, both as a, an actor and a politician. Mm. She's an honest person and there's a truthfulness about everything she does when she nods to him on a, having seen him from a number 15 bus oh that's a lovely moment yeah that's like the second encounter isn't it you really believe that she's pleased to see him and she gives him the kind of nod <laughs> that that person would give somebody who she's how amazing what an encounter yeah and that's there's a kind of honesty in that moment that kind of defines her. Yeah, that's really nice, that moment. And he's slightly flabbergasted to have seen her, and he's, and he's delighted as well to have seen her. And there are actually three meet-cutes, if that's, a, if that's yeah. a little... So there's the one at the, the baseball game where they don't get on at all, and that's kind of classic Nora Ephron territory where, yeah. you know, they don't get on or they don't like each other. Then there's a, the moment in the bus that you just talked about, and then there's a taxi. So it's quite, And it's quite unusual that normally there's the meet-cute moment will be what kickstarts the whole thing but um does have three is quite unusual they progress in a quite believable manner i think yeah once if you accept that the first one is remotely believable which you might not give me my boy will you lady give me my kid will you mister if you finish trampling on him that is oh right thank you come on there you go pal you all right now can i have my ball what you're holding my ball oh your ball thanks anytime there are quite a number of physical gags. There's a lot of physical comedy, mm. um, which in a romantic film, you perhaps wouldn't expect to get at quite the level that you get. So for example, the whole routine in A Touch of Class about his, his back, his back <laughs> which is- It's very funny. <laughs> is, as a piece of sustained physical theater, I think very, very funny. It's still very funny. And she's very funny just, dealing with it yeah i think what's funny about that um well lots of it's funny but when the doctor arrives she is sitting up her back against the headboard and he's in agony and the doctor and the hotel night porter standing there and she's just very amused by it she's sort of smiling (laughs) wryly just we are making love um the spanish thing this is my clumsy link to the previous feature that uh, the listener would have just heard oh i see um because the previous feature was about Bradley's Spanish Bar on Hanway Street. Oh, right. Um, my themes are very blunt sometimes. Shameless. Yeah. But actually, in a way, the Spanish thing is, it feels very of its time because everybody was going to Spain in those yeah. days. On the buses, are you being served? Yeah. yeah. And it, the portrayal of Spain is quite, the hotel doesn't work properly. And that's straight out of a carry-on film. I also think that 
the Spanish and the Soho thing are linked in the American imagination in terms of Melvin Frank in, in some kind of way. Not necessarily in his, but in the way that he wants to portray it to an American audience. You know, the British had had this reputation of being stiff, up, live, uptight, all that kind of thing. And he was looking for opportunities to show that there's a beating heart underneath the surface. And um, Spain, I mean, as Italy is in the M. Forster, you know, it becomes, or India, it becomes this place where the English... Let uh, their hair down. Let their hair down. But it, it doesn't quite work. And, and because the British do it, the Americans can do it, it doesn't quite work because Glenda's character is so honest. Mm. She's as honest in London as she is in Spain. And also, I think she would have been quite familiar with going abroad anyway. It's not yeah. like a massive no, deal to right. her. I hadn't thought of that. That's right. Should we talk about the uh, another trope, along with the the Spanish hotel trope, the GBF, the gay best friend trope. Oh, the gay best friend. Played by your friend, I believe. Well, Michael Elwin, I do know Michael Elwin. Good actor. You can find him doing a lot of films in this period. French Lieutenant's Woman, for example. Mm. He's Jeremy Irons' lawyer in that. I'm just a very good actor, and I think he keeps it in bounds. You know, mm. it's he, he, a lesser actor would have taken it a lot further. He did inmanise it. He didn't inmanise it, and with no disrespect to John Inman, who did what he did. Siegel's character does this thing of insisting, or it's emphasised, not insisting, emphasising that he's got a male secretary. A male secretary. Yeah, quite early on he says that was Derek, my male my secretary. male secretary. Yeah, who's also, a, a, who has another gay character, or, or less explicitly so. I don't know, that's a bit more ambiguous, but he certainly could be. Yeah. Whereas that guy in... Siegel's office. Yeah, he sort of smiles at uh, George Siegel's character in a flirtatious way. Yeah, and George does a little kiss back, and then that's the, there's no that's the end of that moment. Then, I mean, it's a slightly. I don't think I've seen portrayals of homosexuality in this era that are much much more negative. And actually, I think it's a, it's all right for its time. You know, I think there's an attempt somewhere along the line to see gay people as people, but different. Mm. And uh, in its admittedly very crude way, that's what's happening. Michael Elwin's character ends up having a, a, a boyfriend whose face you never see at the end. Yeah, but I think he's a passing through boyfriend, isn't he? Yes, or possibly. But uh, yes, he's made arrangements, he mm. says. Yes, there's a, there's a, I don't know, is it redolent of swinging London and all that kind of thing, maybe? Possibly. I just, I'm just curious, because when I mentioned that to you by email, you said a very early example of the gay best friend trope. And I thought, oh, yes, I think it... I can't think of an earlier example. Well, it, de- it depends how far back you go, whether you think uh, Spencer Tracy and... Who's the lead in Test Pilot? Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy. And, um, you know, Spencer Tracy's being... You, you would look at that relationship now and think, oh, well, it's your gay best friend. A man's gay best friend. Tracy's playing a person who is absolutely dedicated. It's it's a bit like Sam and Frodo in Lord, Lord of, of the, the Rings. Rings. It's there's a kind of bond which, as a, as a gay person myself, you re, you recognise as being rather passionate. Okay. And greater than just locker room pals. I wonder if there's a thing happening at that era at that period when there'd always been gay characters in films recognisable to gay audience members. 
but they had to make them slightly more explicit, slightly more obvious, just so that the mainstream straight audience got it. Well, I mean, this is a complicated issue, isn't it? Because you've, you've got actors like Franklin Pangborn in American films, or Edward Everett Horton, who is what would have been called then an effeminate character. And those in the know knew that uh, both of those people were gay and that it's all about what you tell audiences isn't it and they're they're character actors and we're never particularly interested in their characters lives the characters that they prepare because you're more interested in Cary Grant and Myrna Loy or whatever but as the years go by making gay people's lives visible it's exactly the same with any person of colour you know there they are being the maid yeah or the barman, or the porter on the train. And there's no attempt to give them a life. Mm. And it's only... Uh, when, when, you are, when they are given a life, it's in incredibly stereotypical terms. So it's probably just around this time, no, a little earlier maybe, as you get um, Sidney Poitier and the Defiant Ones and all this. They're people with lives, mm. just like everybody else. Yeah. And that journey for gay characters, I suppose just begins to start here just begins in a very tentative way I mean you know whether we're there yet I don't know oh we never know I mean I think you always have to look back and say oh that was a we weren't there then we certainly you weren't there then well I think the fact that he's the person that she turns to when she wants a dog and cat and birds sit her I mean that's a normal thing you know you turn to your friend you know and no, that's nothing to do with him being gay that's to do with him being her friend and because what often gay best friends are portrayed as the one you go out drinking with and get really pissed with, and it's all outrageous, and actually they, they're just mates who rely on each other, you know. In that one little snapshot that you see, you know. Yes, I mean, there's probably quite a good movie about those two characters. Yeah, I did feel that there's a good movie about her life in general, yeah, her relationships. Because um, you don't see, apart from the her kids at the very beginning you don't know anything about you don't see her home you don't see her family life you don't see her friends apart from that I think she pulls away from her home in a car to go to the airport that's right I think it's somewhere like Holland Park or Made of yeah. Vale or something like that but then the film is about him and it's, a, it and it's for the audience in America and but you know not a terrible film for all that I mean I think now it it probably wouldn't have got the accolades that it got. I think so. Therefore, I think it must have been breaking some kind of ground that is a bit invisible to us in 2021. One of the things that's a bit of a mystery to me, and which is germane to what you just said, is the way that the film ends. And I don't mean the fact that they split up, but it just stops. Yeah. It. It. I've never seen a film like it. Actually, he takes the thing off the record player, and the film stops. Yeah. Dead. With with the photograph of and he's looking east over London from that from his office it feels as though there's a kind of winding down that you would normally expect of a film but this thing just stops like the record I mean I think that's the sort of the analogy isn't it he takes a needle off the record and then that's the end of the affair yeah been mulling over something that Gary said in that conversation which is that there's probably a good film to be made about the relationship between Vicky and Cecil her GBF both of those actors are still with us Glenda Jackson is 84 Michael Elwin is 78 maybe in the actual sequel to Touch of Class 
Vicky and Cecil are cantankerous old flatmates living in that same Macclesfield Street flat. If anybody wants to write that film, you would have the full backing of all the enormous team here at Soho Bites Mansions. Thanks to Gary Yershon for... Sorry. Thanks to Oscar-nominated Gary Yershon for coming on the show and for the excellent film suggestion. Although Gary was quite scathing about the film's closing number, All That Love Went to Waste, sung by Madeline Bell, I've actually grown to quite like it. And if you want to hear it in all its glory, plus some of the other tunes from A Touch of Class, you can go over to the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com where you'll find a link to a playlist of music from the film. And don't forget that other address for all your lovely comments. RateThisPodcast.com forward slash SohoBites. As ever, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at BitesSoho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. See you soon, and bye for now. Bye.